when, when I was a young man, uh, I had a pastor, Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry was an intellectual, really. He read thick books of theology and apologetics, and he was just ferocious about guarding truth. And that, and that was, uh, oh, it's Pe- Kevin was his name, Pastor Kevin. I'm mixing them up. Pastor Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. Okay, so it's Pastor Kevin. Kevin was the total, uh, total intellectual apologetic guy, and, and I thought, well, I need to do that too. So I tried to start reading through big, thick theology books. Oh, it was tough going, and they have these words like, Normal people don't use these words, okay? Then I went off to college, and I met Lyle, and Lyle was another strong man of God from my vantage point, and Lyle would get up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and pray for like two hours before he started his day. I know, kapow. And I thought, well, man, I need to get up at 4 and 4.30 and, and, and pray too, no matter how tired I am or even if I don't want to. I should because Lyle's doing it, and he's godly, and you know, I think John Wesley must have done something like that. And I got to a point in my 30s where that stuff, it wasn't working. And I, and I was getting frustrated. I was frustrated because the, the things that I saw godly men do in their lives that worked for them didn't seem to work for me. And then I would feel guilty because I wasn't doing the godly stuff. And so it was like a double whammy. You're frustrated because it's not working. And then <coughs> guilty because you're not. Isn't that a great place to be? No, it's an awful place to be. If, if like me, you have ever gotten stuck, have you, have you gotten stuck with God, stuck in the sense that uh, you know you're not flourishing and stuck too because uh, what's worked in the past isn't working now or what other people do, they tell you, we well, just do this, do ABC, and you try ABC and it doesn't work for you and you get frustrated. If, if you've ever been there, I have good news for you today. But before we get to that, I want to talk about why we get in these points in Christian circles. And there are a couple of reasons why this happens. One is that we mistakenly make the Christian life out to be a journey of self-improvement. Okay? Christianity is all about trying harder. You know, can you imagine that in in a billboard logo kind of a thing? Jesus Incorporated. We try harder. It doesn't work. Here's the cycle. Here's how that works. You feel guilty because you're not where you're supposed to be, so you try harder. And in trying harder, often nine times out of ten, the trying harder doesn't work. So then you get really fatigued and frustrated, and what happens? You quit. This, trust me, I learned this all kinds of ways. In my marriage with Jenny, it works the same way. Jenny sits me down and confronts me about something that I need to change. I make a list. I resolve. I'm going to try harder. Then it doesn't work, and then I fatigue and quit, and then boom, we're back to the drawing board. You know, she'll be the first to tell you, if you want Max to change, don't have him sit down and make a list and resolve to try harder. Self-improvement has never worked for him. (laughs) But other things do, okay? Uh, In your dental hygienist, when you go in and you see them and they're like, you know, you need to floss. Yeah, I need to floss. I was just there this week, okay? Made the resolve. I'm going to floss. I don't even have floss in my house. Who am I kidding? It's not going to happen, okay? I just forget the whole cycle. It's just not happening. Christianity is not about trying harder, okay? Here's, Here's the thing. God saved me by grace. All I did was offer myself. God made me a new person. All I did was offer myself. Why would we make the Christian life out to be the self-improvement thing where we're constantly trying harder? That's not a grace way of living, okay? So that's the first thing that gets us stuck 
is, is this misnomer about Christianity is, is about trying harder. It's not. It's about grace. The second, the second reason it doesn't work is because in Christian circles, we have mistakenly adopted a one-size-fits-all approach. And here's, here's, here's how it plays out. <clears throat> if you grew up in church a long time ago, they would talk about having, you need to have a devotional. If you have a devotional, you will just be like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, connected to God, and you'll flourish. And the devotional is really simple. You get up early, earlier than you want to, and you read your Bible for 20 minutes. When you're done, pray for 20 minutes, preferably using a prayer guide from your church or an approved missionary. Pray fervently. And then spend five or 10 minutes journaling so that you can record the gems and jewels that have happened in your 40, you know, 60-minute window with God. And, and it works for some people. And then for the rest of us, it's like, it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work. One size, if a doctor, if your doctor, if, if their approach to treating ills was take two Advil, no matter what problem came their way, would they be a doctor very long? No. I mean, it works great for a headache, but if you have an appendicitis, an appendix about to burst, it's, you know, you're dead. The next day, you're dead, okay? Or, or what parent treats two kids exactly the same way? Or I have a visual I have a visual. You'll remember today's message. Trust me. I have a visual. I like to think of myself as a regular guy. I do. But I, I understand that I'm not. I'm skinny. Fine. I can live with that. That's okay. And from time to time, Isaiah is always telling me, I want to get a t-shirt thrower. You know, one of those guns that you, you shoot a t-shirt into the crowd. Churches have gotten onto this bandwagon, and, and they do this. They now shoot out t-shirts, okay? But if you're a guy like me, I know this is a local church, okay? So there you go. Is this working? No. I can totally get into the logo on the back. I'm here to serve. But you know what? If you're going to shoot a t-shirt into the crowd, one size does not fit all. Shoot out a small from time to time. The big guy next to me will look at it and he'll look at me and then he'll give me the shirt. Don't be, you know, this does not work. One size does not fit all, okay? And that's what I want you to realize about your Christian walk. If you try and adopt the one-size-fits-all mindset, it won't. What works for your neighbor may not necessarily work for you. What works for your sister in Des Moines may not necessarily work for you. And what works for your pastor may not necessarily work for you. Uh, but here's the good news. I feel like David in the, in the Old Testament gives us a clue on how to walk this out. So if you brought a Bible, open it to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to be in, I think, the most famous, one of the top 10 Bible stories easily, okay? So it's David and Goliath. You've heard it, you know it, and because you know it so well, it's probably not doing you any good because you know it. But we're going to flesh out something that you may have missed, that I may have missed, okay? So in this, in this chapter, in this chapter, uh, What's happening is the Philistines have come out to march against the Israelites. And there's this valley, the Valley of Elah. And on one side, the southern slopes, up goes the uh, Philistine army. And then down in the valley. And then up the other slopes are the Israelites. Yay! They're not as strong as the Philistines. They don't have iron and stuff. So, you know, it's all they can muster. But they're excited. God's going to go to bat for them. And then in verse 8, we learn that the Philistines have something. They have a champion. And out comes Goliath. Fee, fi, fo, fum. 
No. What does he say? He says, he says, uh, he shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you coming to, out to fight? I'm a Philistine uh, champion. You're only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight for me. I will kill him and eat his head off. Okay, he's big, he's mean, he's nasty. And the Bible tells us in verse 11, when the Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified. They were terrified. They were scared, witless. Well, David's role in all of this is he, when he's at home, he shuttles back and forth between the battlefield and home. And when he's at home, he's tending sheep. Over here. Come on. Come on, Susie. Over here. Does his little shepherd whistle, and Susie comes over. And then, then his father, I need you to take some stuff to your older brothers who are on the battlefield. Yes, sir. Sir, I'm going. Exciting, you know, battle stuff. And they're not really doing anything. They just go out every morning, and Goliath comes. Fee, fi, fo, fum. And the Israelites go, ah! And, you know, each goes back up to their own side. It's not a really way to wage a war, but that's what they were doing. And so David, David sees something and, and says something that's just uncharacteristic of anybody else. And uh, he asks, in verse 26, he asks the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway who is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? I love it because he sees what everyone else misses. All of the Israelites up the northern slopes, they see this champion warrior and they're scared to death of him. And little teenager David comes in and he sees somebody who's simply defying God and knows, come on, who's going to... Who's going to show him how life works? You don't defy God and live. And, and woven into these chapters is this theme where David sees the way God sees. And, and we get a clue in, in chapter 16 when God tells uh, Samuel, the prophet, look, I, I look at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance. I see differently than you. And, and in this chapter, we're kind of, Get, we're getting a glimpse that David sees like God sees, not like the way people see. But here's the meat of the passage, and here's where it applies to you and me when it comes to how to flourish. And it's found in verses 31 and following. Then David questioned, David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Saul takes one look at David sizes him up and concludes, yeah, um, thanks for coming in and everything. We're, you know, we're just really glad to have people in Israel who are just, you know, gosh, your loyalty, your brain, it's just wonderful. It's awesome. Thanks, thanks for coming in. Guys, would you show David the door? Thank you. Thank you, son, for coming. And, you know, he says it. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied, verse 33. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth, okay? And then David persists, and David, this is where David gives him his big speech, okay? I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. <laughs> and when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue that lamb from its mouth. And if an animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do this to this pagan Philistine, for he's defied the armies of the living God. That's quite a little speech there, isn't it? And, and 
The Lord who rescued me, verse 37, from the claws of the lion and bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Well, Saul does something, you know, he decides, okay, maybe we'll let you. So Saul does something understandable. He lends David his armor. Here, here's a sword, here's a tunic, here's a breastplate, here's, here's, the, here's what you'll need to go up against that Philistine warrior. And I love it. Uh, skip down to verse the second half of verse 39. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again, and he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them in a shepherd's bag. And then armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. David, as a teenager, was self-aware enough to know who he was and who he wasn't. And despite being given the armor of the king of Israel, he has the ability and self-awareness to go, you know what? This isn't who I am. I'm not a warrior. I'm not a 52 long. I'm a 36 short. I'm not a man. I'm a teenager. I'm a shepherd. These aren't the things that I need to do what God is going to ask me to do or what I, what I know I'm doing in the flow of the Spirit. I'm going to be me. And he picks up five smooth stones and he goes off to charge up against the, the Philistine. This is amazing to me. And I think there's a spiritual principle in here. Uh, and that is this. David knew what works for Saul may not necessarily work for him. And he knows who God has made him to be, and he's confident enough. And does it work? Does David's way work? You know the rest of the story. Does Goliath win? No. no. He's slaughtered one stone, quarter between the eye, and he's down for the count. John Ortberg says this. He says, The greatest battle of our life is a spiritual one. Why would we try to fight it using weapons that have helped someone else in battle? All right, so where, where do you start? Let me, let, me, let me begin with the clarifying question. We call these clarifying questions. And here's a question I want you to ask yourself. What brings me life? What brings me life? In other words, what do you do that makes you feel fully alive? For some of you, uh, it's like reading a really good book and you just, you're breathing better, you're in the flow of it. Mike Lesage, he'll tell you any day it's warm, above freezing. You know what he does? And he's on his motorcycle. Why? Because in the process of being on that motorcycle, he comes alive. And we're going to talk about the God part in a, in a minute. But I want you to think about yourself. What, what makes you come alive? For some of you, it might be watching an inspiring movie, or maybe it's having coffee with friends or playing basketball with friends and giving them the elbow of death on the court, okay? Maybe it's being alone. Maybe it's listening to music. Maybe it's a long drive by yourself. Maybe it's a hobby like gardening or scrapbooking. The activity isn't important. Here's the, here's the kicker. It's not the activity it's, that's important. It's doing it in the flow of God's Spirit. And to, do, and to give you a little bit of an idea of how that might work, I want to tell you about the, what I do. And in doing that, here's my chastisement. Don't copy me. You're going to have to figure out what works for you. This works for me. It's not for you. It's for me. Okay? Um, and he's going to scroll through. What, during the warmer months, I take what I call my planning days. But really, it's my God days. That's really what they are. They're my God days. And I load up my boat on the back of the church truck, and I go to the Green River Lake. 
and uh, I take books with me. I take uh, my journal and my magic pen, and I do all kinds of different things. There's the corny me. There's the me. I'll take two 20-minute naps, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. You want to know why? I'm tired. <laughs> and when I wake up, I'm refreshed, okay? But I'll do this for eight or nine hours. And what I found is here's the flow of the day that, that works. When I'm, when I'm in that truck, about 20 minutes down, to the, down the road, I'm starting my conversation with God. And I'm saying, and, I'm, and the things that are worrying me, stressing me out, the relational issues, I'm just having a conversation with God. And I'm talking out loud in the cab of the truck. And about 30 minutes down the road, 45 minutes down the road, I'm beginning to feel his presence stronger. By the time I get to the dock, I have some sense of maybe some direction that he's going to take for the day. And so I'll spend eight hours. I'll paddle out to a spot. I'm not paddling all day. The, the kayak is simply a vehicle to get me somewhere to be by myself. Why? Because I'm an introvert. I don't want somebody coming down the hiking path. <laughs> I want to be all by myself, just me and God. That's how I'm hardwired. You're different. And so uh, I'll read a while. I'll take a 20-minute nap. I'll pray. I'll pray for all of you guys. I'll pray for me and my family. And in the process of doing that, I just hear God. I hear God stronger, louder, clearer. And I'll do it for eight or nine hours. I'll load up my boat, and I'll come home. Now, I understand in, for, for your life and what you're doing, taking an entire day like that is not necessarily going to work, okay? But I'm a pastor, and I think us pastors, the, the, the bar is a little different in the sense that Every week we've got to open God's word in a compelling way and we need to sit down one-on-one -on -one with people and, and have a sense and, of where God's leading them in their life and what the next step is. And there's all this stuff we have to do and it's like, how do you do all that? It's almost like being a mom. I mean, who can pull that off, okay? So as I'm talking this through, let's say that you figured out that one of the things that makes you come alive, let's say, is gardening, okay? And you're going to do it an hour three times a week, four times a week. When you're getting your tools out and you're starting to get ready, start that conversation with God in your head. Just lay out what's on your mind, what's on your heart. Put your agenda out there. And then the key kicker is to voice and mean it. Hey, I'm gardening now. This is your time. I want, I want to hear from you. What do you want me to know? What do you want me to hear? How do you, you know? And you'll find that as you do it habitually, that God meets you in those times. And here's what will happen, um, whether it's a motorcycle drive or a movie or whatever it is, when you're bringing God into it and God becomes a part of it, you have an unseen enemy now who's going to try and kill that activity, okay? So let's say you're a gardener or whatnot, you're going to have slugs, you're going to have all these things that are going to go wrong, that are going to be, I'm going to try and get you to not garden because you're not, not, you're not just doing the activity now, you're doing it with the lens of trying to hear and be connected to God. And so your unseen enemy is going to do anything he can to knock that out of your life. So understand that. I am tempted every time I load up my boat for one of these days, there are at least three compelling reasons why I shouldn't leave town that day. It's just, it happens. It's just part of the process. So understand that's part of the deal, and it's going to take some tenacity on your part to go, uh-uh, I want to live, baby. <laughs> okay, because here's the downside what I found when, when these aren't a part of regular part of my life, I'm literally withering on the inside. But that's because I'm an introvert. I need to be away by myself. I, I, I sense and hear God louder in creation. That's one of the sacred pathways. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And, and so that works for me. It may not work for you. Does this make sense? Okay, so let's, 
let's talk about this. And there, there are three questions of discernment that I want you to start thinking through. Here's question number one. How do I learn? How do I learn? You need to figure out how you learn. For me, I'm a reader. I just read and I get it. That's how I learn. Some people learn by doing. Some people learn by watching. There, there are all kinds of different ways to learn, but you've got to figure out how you learn because that's an important ingredient in figuring out you. The second discerning question is this. What's my sacred pathway? And I love Gary Thomas for what he's done. He wrote a book, The Sacred Pathways. It's worth reading, and, and I'll list off his uh, nine or ten, okay? One is a naturalist. They find God in nature. That's me, okay? The others are an aesthetic. They're drawn to disciplines. It's the rigor and regularity and everything of it, and they come alive. They flourish in it. Some are traditionalists. They love historical liturgies. They feel alive when it's the smells, bells, and, and chanting and everything else, and they just feel God, and they connect to God. Some are activists. They come spiritually alive in a great cause. Uh, my wife Jenny is one of these, okay? Some are a caregiver. They meet God in serving, just doing stuff, helping somebody. Boom, they, they're like channeling Jesus right then and there. Uh, some are sensates. They sen- feel God through their five senses, I mean, it has to be touch, taste, smell. I mean, the real nitty-grittiness of it. Some are enthusiasts. They, lo- they, they grow primarily and experience God through other people. And that's a good thing. There, some are, con- 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 blah, I can never say this word, contemplatives. They're drawn to solitary reflection and prayer. Some are intellectuals. That's Pastor Kevin. It's through learning and all that other stuff. Knowing your pathway is important too. So that's another discerning question. And the third discerning question is, what's my personality? Some are introverts. Some are extroverts. Some like orderliness. Some are, dude, like go with the flow. Okay? We've got a lot of those here, don't we? (laughs) Okay? So knowing these things will help. Once you've discerned some things about yourself, how God made you, then do something about it. And here's, here's my advice, and here's the homework assignment. One, be intentional. Schedule time for it. Once you know what that activity is, and you're going to make God part of that, and that's going to become a God-flourishing thing for you, schedule it. Commit it in your calendar. Guard it. Why? Because it is sacred. Okay? Um, don't allow urgent things, other things to crowd it out, because it brings you life. And the kicker, again, is if it's done in the flow of the Spirit. If you're just doing the activity in and of itself, that's not a God thing. That's just an activity. Um, the second part the second part of the homework is this. Devise a plan. Um, Jesus' life is filled with practices that he did habitually. The Bible tells us that he would often go alone in solitude, away to pray. The Bible tells us that Jesus hung out with his friends, and he did this habitually. The Bible tells us that he was having spiritual conversations with people where he was towing out back and forth. What's God really like? What's his heart like? How do you know? What's God really doing in the world? How do you know? I mean, back and forth and back and forth. And it was phrased in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So devise a plan. Um, Recently, and I'll tell you about this. uh, Ortberg's devised this thing called a Monvi tool. You know, you can spend $19 and take one. If money's an object and you want to do this, the church will pay for it, okay? Because I think this could be a helpful tool. I took it, and do you know what it told me? Nothing I didn't already know. But this may be revelatory. You know what it printed off? It said, Max, 
you learn primarily through reading. So you need to factor in reading in your God activity, blah, blah, blah. You're a creation pathway. You experience God primarily through nature. And you have a Joseph personality. Checklists and getting things done are important to you. And here's the upside of that, and here's the downside of that. And, and if you want to do that, if you want to take some steps, uh, I want you on one of the communication cards today to write that down. I want to do Monvi or write Monvi on the back and put it in an offering box, and I'll be contacting you this week because I want you to take the, the, these steps. And we're going to have some conversation uh, nights, a couple of Thursday nights and a couple of Saturday mornings where we can, if you want to go further with this, I'd love to talk with you about how to do that and how you're hardwired and what that will look like. So, um, so there you go. Here's why this is important. And I want to read you something from Ephesians chapter 2. And I've copied this from my NIV Bible, so it's a different translation. This is what it says. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. And then I have a footnote at the bottom, and this is what the footnote says. Workmanship. The Greek for this word sometimes has the connotation of a work of art. For we are God's masterpiece. See, God's not the foreman in a factory. And when he made you, you're not some silicon chip that's exactly identical to the silicon chip right next to you. God wants you to become the work of art that he had in mind when he made you. And part of that is understanding how he made you and who he made you to be and how to stay connected to him so that you flourish.